Well, good morning for me too. Thank you very much, Robert. Kids, you guys have a blast learning all that kind of good stuff. Well, happy Sunday, and it's finally not raining, right? It's finally not 65 degrees and raining. Your backyard's not a swampy mess. Hopefully still it's not. Um, well, it is late June, and late June is a time for, you know, nice warm weather, some sunbathing, and weddings, right? We all have like probably our fair share of weddings that we roll around, and I have the last couple weeks been hanging out at weddings. Um, so a couple week as, uh, weeks ago, I was down in Finley for a wedding and met a lovely young woman named Megan. Uh, now, you know, you get your card with like your table on it, and you're sort of like, who'd they pair me with, you know? And so I'm like approaching this table, I know like two people at the table, and the other seven, I have no clue, so that means new friends. And so sit down, begin to kind of get everyone's names, and uh, there's this girl, uh, May, and we kind of struck up a conversation, all the niceties, you know, like, how do you know the couple, where are you from, you know, she's from St. Louis, she's a Cardinals fan, which, you know, to me, that's not a great thing, but, you know. Um, but anyways, we kind of were talking about what do you do, and I'm like, yeah, I'm a pastor, you know, at a, a church and stuff like that. I'm like, what do you do? She's like, well, I do such and such a thing, but in four months, I'm heading to Bangladesh, and I'm like, oh, well, who goes to Bangladesh? What's bringing you to Bangladesh? And she had mentioned that there's this opportunity to work with a, ref, a refugee population called the Ryunyas. Now, she had uh, shared with me just a little bit about who these people were. There's about 700,000 people in this uh, group of people who were uh, overnight displaced from uh, their country in Myanmar because of religious persecution. And they found uh, homage, ref, uh, refuge in Bangladesh. And so there's in these massive ref- refugee camps. And she just began to share with me just sort of like what their situation was, how dire it was. She said that it's a hotbed hot for like ISIS recruitment because you have a bunch of people who are uh, ethnically Muslim, who are disillusioned. And all of a sudden they have an opportunity for uh, hope, a new life, you know. And so she just shared like that they have a need and that she had this opportunity to go and meet this need. Now, in my mind, my American mind, I'm like, you live in the Midwest. You know, this is like God's country, you know. You live in St. Louis, you know. There's tons of great things. There's baseball and, you know, there's beef and, you know, hamburgers and things like that. You know, mild weather. Why would you want to move to like some place that's like hot and humid that the food probably isn't going to sit right with you and your housing is probably so much better in St. Louis and it's going to be sitting in these dormitories and a refugee camp. And I just said, like, can I just ask you, like, as a single woman, how can you go? And she looked at me sort of with this sort of like, like look of like, shouldn't you know? She's like, the gospel, of course. Well, yeah, like I am the pastor. I should know the answer to that question. Of course you would go because of the gospel, right? And so let's press into that a little bit. What does that mean that she would be compelled to uproot her life in middle America and all that she has here and the blessings that she has here to move halfway around the world as a single woman because of the gospel, well, we're in this series called The Path of Life, that we believe and we know that through Jesus, God has given us eternal life. And that eternal life isn't just in the future, when we pass from this life to the next, but that eternal life can be had now, and that there's a, a path that we're walking. And we're taking a look at what has been known as the seven deadly sins, these kind of potholes, pitfalls along the path that kind of get us caught up away from the life that God would call us to live into living for something lesser. And this morning we're going to take a look at greed and charity. 
So greed, how it is that we fall into this pothole of greed, and how it is, and how do we arrive at living out a charitable life? We're going to take a look at a couple of different key points. First, that greed suffocates empathy, that the gospel is a fountain of empathy, and charity flows from a heart of empathy. If I were to kind of give you like the big idea this morning, it's this. On the path of life, the Lord gives us all we need in our weaknesses. Therefore, we are called to charity. So we're going to press into that this morning. So allow me to pray for us before we open up God's word and read it together. Heavenly and gracious Father, God, we put ourselves before you and we ask, God, would you be our teacher and instructor this morning? As we hear from your word, we know that your word is both the light to our path, the light, the life of our life. Would we understand what you call us to do, God? Would we understand the life that you've given us and the life that we are called to live in this lifetime? So God, would you give us hearts that are soft, open to hearing how you might call us into this path of life this morning? Amen. All right, the psalmist David writes this in Psalm 41. Happy are those who consider the poor. The Lord delivers them in the day of trouble. The Lord protects them and keeps them alive. They are called happy in the land. You do not give them up to the will of their enemies. The Lord sustains them on their sickbed. In the illness, you heal all their infirmities. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies wander in malice when I will die and my name perish. And when they come to see me, they utter empty words while their hearts gather mischief. When they go out, they tell it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They think that a deadly thing has fastened on me, that I will not rise again from where I lie. Even my bosom friend in whom I trusted, who ate of my bread, has lifted the heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you are pleased with me because my enemy has not triumphed over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. So David gives us this very straightforward propositional statement that you want to live a good life? Live charitably. That charity is along the path of life. And that the life of God is received as we live in relation to those who are in need around us. Now, right off the bat, there's three different words that we need to kind of press into a little bit to kind of see what exactly is David saying. First, what does David mean when he says the poor? All right, the poor. Now, the Hebrew word here that's used for the poor is not only speaking to those who are financially impoverished. It's a broader term to those who are weak, to those who are vulnerable, that we all, in some form or fashion, have weaknesses And that our world is surrounded in impoverishments that are not just financial. You might not realize this or not, but just a week ago, you were extended a very open invitation to take a permanent vacation to the island of Arnmore in uh, Ireland. Here it is. It's gorgeous. It's pristine. So Arnmore has actually invited you to come and live with them. They've got high-speed internet for those of you who have global jobs that can like work from home. You know, they've got, uh, you know, you think the traffic in BG is horrendous. They've got even less traffic there. Five minutes, one side of town to another. Quaint living. They say that their seafood rivals that of New England. 
better than New England seafood. All right, so if you're a seafood lover, you definitely want to head to this and pick picturesque scenery that you can live, beautiful beaches, obviously wonderful cliffs. Why are they inviting you, and not just you, but every single American to come and take up residence on their island? Well, they're down to their last 469 residents. You see, Arnmore is people poor. And they realize, they see the writing on the wall, that their way of life, their culture, their human habitation of this gorgeous island is going to be completely gone in a couple of centuries if people do not begin to move in. And they're looking to America and Australia, for those of us who can travel, so those of us who have global jobs, to consider giving of what we have, abundance of people and mobility, to come to their island because they have need. So people all around us have need. We have weaknesses. All right, so what does it mean to consider? So David says those who consider the poor. Well, considering the poor is beyond just hearing or seeing, but it's something more than that. It's something more than just seeing that there's someone that has a weakness, but it's actually beginning to step in and do something about it. Uh, a couple months ago, I was actually stranded at a Starbucks because my battery in my car ran out. I mean, we've all been there, right? You know, I'm supposed to be like getting home, like after work to, uh, you know, relieve my wife from her childcare duties that she's been doing, you know, all day. And I'm anxious to get back to my family and eat a good, warm, hot meal that my wife has made. And I'm stranded in Starbucks. Now, the way my car was positioned, which that's not a big deal, right? I mean, you just like kind of pop the hood, hook up the jumper cables. But the way that my car was positioned, it made it really tricky. There was a van that was parked like right next to mine. The front of my car was butted up against this building. I couldn't locate the person whose van it was like right next to mine. I like asked multiple people. And on the other side of my car was a row of bushes. And then there was a drive-through for the actual Starbucks itself. And so I had to actually stop someone in the drive-through of Starbucks and ask if they'd be willing to wait a couple of minutes in the drive-through while I jumped my car. And so I put myself right in the middle of uh, that drive-through, and I waited for the next car. And the car came, and they obviously were not expecting to see someone just standing in the middle of the drive-through. I'm standing there. I wave them down. I do like the roll your window down, please, you know, that sort of thing. So they cautiously roll down the window. I explain my situation. I need a few minutes of your time. I got the jumper cables ready. Can I just, we just pop your hood and I'll just connect it, you know? And she thought about it. Uh, no, we can't right now. Oh, dang. So she drove away. Well, the next car comes. Certainly they will give me a few minutes of their time. Same thing. Roll your window down, please. Will you allow me? Pop your hood up. Allow me to take some of your battery juice. No, my son's got soccer practice. Ten times. Ten times people said no to me. They were in a rush. They were in a hurry. Or it was just too awkward for them to stand in this uh, Starbucks drive through until finally someone actually literally says, I've been where you are. Yes, you may do. Yes, you may uh, jump, uh, jump your car off, my, uh, off of my battery. So she did. She popped her uh, hood. We talked for a few minutes. She made sure she stuck around long enough that I got out of the driveway or out of the drive. It was great. So 10 people heard my need. They listened to me. And 10 people said no. That's not considering. What David is saying is saying actually responding to those who have a weakness, actually responding to their place of vulnerability and doing something. And then the last word that I want to kind of talk about here is this word happy. It's asher in Hebrew. It really means fullness of life, joy. We might say blessing, but it's, it's this sense of having your cup like overflow with happiness. 
Happy is the person who's willing to consider and to give to those who have need. As my neighbor poignantly pointed out to me uh, yesterday as he was helping me with a plumbing job, he says, I like helping people. It makes me feel good. I think you're on to something, David. So why is it, if this is the path of life, if this is what happiness is, as God tells us, David tells us, what gets in the way? I'll say this. It's that greed suffocates charity. You know that if charity is to live with hands open, willing to let the things that we have in our life, to let them kind of flow from our hands, greed is to clench them. It's to hold them. It suffocates my ability to be charitable. The University of Texas did a study of American giving trends that spanned about 15 years, 2000 to about 2015. And what they were specifically curious about was what happened to Americans' overall giving after the recession of 2008. And so they looked at, I think the average American gave about 3.7% of their annual income before the recession. But then it was uh, down over a whole percentage point of their overall income post the recession. I mean, that might not be a surprise, right? Like the recession hits, people are losing their jobs, things get tight, we begin to like give less. But what's interesting is that even years after the recession, every year after the recession, American giving continued to go down every single year. It dropped. Even though people within the study said that they had fully recovered, if not, maybe their bottom line was better, they were in a better financial position than before the recession. John Muir, the lead author of the study, explained this. It could be that the uncertainty from the recession had a lingering effect. That while as Americans, maybe our pocketbooks showed a healthier bottom line, that doesn't mean that the fear and insecurity that we felt in 2008 had been forgotten. That that point of vulnerability had somehow remained with us, had made us feel like the thing that we have, we might need to hold on to a little bit tighter. Speaking of something other than finances, another study noted about forgiveness. 62% of adults said that they needed more forgiveness in their life. 94% of adults believed that there was a need for more forgiveness in the world. And B.J. Foster, a commentator, said this. He said this about bitterness. Bitterness is hard to let go of because it is a security blanket that provides false comfort and a distraction from our hurt. Greed arrests our ability to live charitably. And the reason that my heart is greedy is that I too am in need. I too am vulnerable. I too am susceptible to fears and insecurities and doubts. And so I hold on to the things that I have, hoping that it will sustain my life, that it will keep my life. David acknowledges his own impoverishment in this psalm. That's why it goes from this beautiful propositional statement right into, interestingly enough, between verses 4 to 10, his own impoverishment. And he notes several. First, David says that he's impoverished by his own sin. That before he begins to talk about the impoverishment of the world or the ways that the world has failed him, he first talks about himself. He says, I need healing. He says, I've sinned against you, Lord. That David understands that the issues of the world stem from him that he is a contributor of those things. He's a contributor of his own impoverishment, that his own rejection and rebellion against and away from God, who's the creator and sustainer and giver of life, that he separated himself from that God. And because of that, he is uh, bankrupt in his soul and in his spirit. 
A couple Christmases ago, I attempted to make my own eggnog. I, uh, I like pet projects. They're really fun. And I like eggnog. And so I thought, pet project, I like eggnog. Let's make my own eggnog. Now, you've got to understand something. While I can be at times ambitious, I am woeful in the kitchen. And so I can barely make an eggo waffle without, like, burning it. My kids are like, no, don't, don't make toast for me. You're going to burn it. You know, Allie makes all of our food. But anyways... I was ambitious. I was going to do this. I really wanted to make some homemade eggnog. And so, you know, I had looked up multiple recipes online. I had watched Alton Brown, like the Food Network, like, you know, superstar guy. Uh, a couple YouTube videos of him on how to make step-by-step, like, eggnog and stuff like that. I bought all the ingredients. I was set to go. All right, so first batch, tastes a little eggy. Not supposed to be like that. The second batch had this really weird foam on the top of it that somehow like it had so what it made was sort of the eggnog was like way too thick with this like chunky like frothy stuff on top i don't know how that happened but uh you could mix it up and it tasted all right but it the consistency was kind of weird and my third batch kid you not actually literally tasted like fried eggs and so i was frustrated three batches three attempts hours spent trying to make this eggnog and I'm like, the ingredients are not mixing the way that they're supposed to mix. Alton Brown, come on, man. You got to dumb down your video, even for me. What does tempering an egg even mean? I have no clue. What are tight peaks? What? I don't know what that is. But the fact is that it wasn't Alton Brown's fault. It wasn't the ingredients' fault. I am impoverished. I am unable. Sometimes even when I want to be charitable, yet I cannot because I am spiritually and morally bankrupt because of my sin. So we all have our own impoverishments from our sin. David, too, notes that he's impoverished because he's immersed in an impoverished world. David says that he has enemies that are plotting against him. In fact, typically within Psalms, what is the crux of every Psalm almost is like the the center of it. Verse 7 is the center. What does David say in verse 7? He says, all who hate me whisper against me together. They imagine the worst for me. That there's a group of people that are actually getting together to like imagine how do we bring David down? How do we bring this guy down? How do we make life hard for him? And maybe you felt like that before. Maybe we felt like, man, my, my family just is against me. They don't want me to have a win in this situation. Man, the system is set up for my failure. You know, my boss, you know, or or those who I work for, they, they purposely overlook me. They don't see me and what I have and what I need. Can we not sometimes feel like the world is set out against us? And thirdly, David notes that his own support systems are impoverished. David says that his closest friend, the one whom he broke bread with, the one who has known him, the one that for sure you can count on when you're down even he let David down. That even the one whom he ought to have been able to count against was not there when David needed him most. If I were to guess, I know this is true of my own life, that is true of almost all of us. Certainly so-and-so won't let me down. They're family. They would never hurt me. They're my best friend. They would never betray me. They would always be there when I need them. Certainly the system or our schools, or even the church, yeah? The church certainly will not let me down, and yet when we look at those sure things, even they don't come through for us. 
So David is exposed. He's in this place of vulnerability. No one is there to help. But there is one. There is one who will always be there for him, and it is God. That we have a God who empathizes with us in every way. The middle section of this psalm is bookmarked by David's very simple prayer, O Lord, be gracious to me. I can't count on anyone else, but I can count on you, God. And so David moves towards God and says, God, I need you to step in in the midst of my vulnerabilities and the step of, in, uh, in the midst of my weaknesses. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in every respect who has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That Jesus came in the flesh and experienced every single bodily ailment that we have. He was tempted just the way that we have been tempted. That in, uh, in the midst of needing justice, the justice system failed Jesus. It uh, was unwilling to admonish him of his innocence. Certainly the Son of God would not have his enemies succeed against him, and yet they did. They succeeded in killing him. One from his very own circle betrayed him to his authorities. His most loyal friends deserted him in his hour of need. In every way, Christ empathizes with our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities. In every way, he understands those moments that we want to hold so tight onto the things that we have because we're afraid and we're scared. And yet Christ put his trust in his heavenly father. And yet Christ entrusted his whole person, trusting God for a better future, a better promise. That the gospel is a fountain of empathy for us. The gospel is a fountain of empathy for us. That through Jesus, God has provided for us in every way. For the forgiveness of our sins. For the love of God and the life of God in us. For a transformed life. Everything that we need. And because of that, Jesus is the motivating drive and power to live a charitable life. Greed and charity are ultimately about worship. Greed and charity are ultimately, it comes down to worship. Worship about whom we serve, about whom do we turn to, whom do we put our trust in. And when I trust in myself, when I trust in those things other than my Heavenly Father, I become greedy. Because I, 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 they're not trustworthy. I have to hold on to what is my, my own. And we see here, David says that when he puts his trust in God, that God is the one who delivers him. When David speaks here of being delivered by his own integrity, he's not talking about his moral righteousness. He's not talking about, you know, how uh, gentlemanly he is in, in his character. Because just a couple of verses before, he was saying, I'm spiritually bankrupt. He says, I'm the problem. And so what does David mean by his integrity? What he's saying is that his whole trust is in God. His purity of heart and trust is found in God and God alone. And so in that sense, charity for us is to worship God and to trust him for our own weaknesses. Therefore, charity flows from a heart of empathy. And the gospel is a limitless source of that empathy. That when I realize that in my hour of need that Christ stepped in for me, then when I see someone else who has a weakness, whatever that weakness, whatever that vulnerability might be, I remember that God was there for me and that I then am to live open-handed just as God lived open-handed with me. And therefore, charity flows 
from my heart. There's a fundamental different question that me and Megan were asking about her travels to Bangladesh. I asked, how can you go? And she said, how could I not go? How can I not go knowing the gospel and what Jesus has done for me? How could I not take this opportunity to lay my life down for somebody else? Coming to this covenant church community, uh, it's been super wonderful. You know, we're talking about these vices and, uh, you know, the accompanying virtues. I mean, I th- I, this church is charitable. We see it in like our partnerships. We see it in the way that we move towards people in our city. I think we really do want to get to know people. We really do want to love people. We want to offer them the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. And I have been so encouraged personally, and I've been so challenged of what does it mean to consider the poor by each and every single one of you and the way this church lives. And yet, while that is true, let us continue to press into how God might have us loosen our hand a little bit more how God might have us look again at who are we maybe potentially overlooking? Who is it that we might not be willing to completely open our hand to and step into their need and respond and do something meaningful to it? How is it that maybe we might consider charity more as something that's throwing resources at something rather than stepping in relationally towards people, that we might understand what they really need? And so in light of that, I would ask you maybe personally to ask yourself this question. Who in your life right now do you know that has, person, has a personal need? Who is it that this past week, this coming week, that you're going to interact with that has a need? And what might God have you do to step into that? Maybe it's your own spouse who did that dumb thing again, who needs your forgiveness. Even though he or she has done it for like, the 1500th time, they need you to be gracious again. Maybe it's your own children who can grade at you sometimes, but they need you to be patient with them. They need you to extend them more patience. Maybe it's your neighbor that you know who is suffering, you know, of a physical ailment, and they need someone bold enough, being willing to be awkward enough to come over and pray for them. Maybe it's your boss who's just again, out to get you, or in it for themselves. And you can feel like, man, in the coffee room, it's easy to gossip about them. And what if you, this week, rather than doing that, engage in encouraging them? That even though it's easy to cast them as all bad, you look at them with the eyes of Christ and see the good. And maybe it's taking up Nancy Aridan, our missional uh, director, and one of her partnership uh, emails that she sends out. You know, as we have been highlighting every month different, uh, different uh, organ- partnering organizations here in the community, maybe there's been something you've noticed you haven't quite acted on, maybe this is the week to act on that, to step into some of those needs and begin to do it. Our town is full of people who have a poverty of hope, full of people who are living for the moment because they don't understand what their future glory could be in Christ, and they could benefit from encouragement. There's plenty of people in our town who have a poverty of health, that need the laying on of hands and prayer. There's plenty of people who have a poverty of manpower that need time and energy. There's plenty of people who have a poverty of forgiveness. And while forgiveness is challenging, maybe they could use you stepping in with Christ that you might be then able to offer them the gift of forgiveness. On the path of life, the Lord gives us all we need in and through Jesus in our weaknesses. Therefore, Covenant Church, we are called and we can 
live a charitable life. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you that we can be reminded again in every way that your scripture doesn't just call us to good behavior, but it calls us to see your open and loving and vulnerable heart. How in the midst of our own vulnerabilities, Lord, even though we haven't earned it or deserve it, you step into our need, you forgive us, you give us your life, you give us your fellowship, you provide for every need that we have, Lord. When we cry out to you, you don't turn your back, but you hear us and you respond. And so, Father, will we take great hope and encouragement that you have come and met us where we're at. And as we move out into our world this week, would you strengthen us in and with the gospel that we might live open-handed with this city, with our neighbors, and with one another. In your name, Jesus, amen.